Thank you, Steve. Bob Dylan wrote that tune as a tribute to the great Piedmont blues man, Blind Willie McTell. And if you, the lyrics clearly are a tribute to more than Blind Willie McTell. It's a tribute to the blues and to the culture that the blues arose in. To my mind, there can't ever be enough tribute to the blues and to the creative people who made this music a gift to the whole world, a gift not just to our ears, but to our souls. Our benefactors, ironically, are the generous people who descend from Africans who were brought to these shores as slaves, people who were oppressed for centuries in our own country as less than human. The blues is a music of spirit insisting on liberty. It was born from a marriage of African musical sensibilities and music that the slaves heard on these shores. Gospel music and spirituals arose from mixing these same sensibilities with European hymn tunes that the slaves were exposed to as Christianity was imposed on them, Im imposed on them. Slave traders and plantation owners did all they could to crush the Africans' native culture, but while they could outlaw African religions and the sacred drum, there was one thing they could never take away. There was no way to keep them from singing. And that's how the gift of the blues came to the world. And what a triumph of the human spirit. One of the things that we can learn from this today is that short of death, oppression can never be complete. In the words of Ralph Ellison, the blues is, quote, an assertion of the irrepressibly human. The slaves and their descendants proved this. They proved it with their music and with their lives. And as we celebrate their gift of music today, we will also explore the deep well that the blues sprang from. That was a little blues punctuation mark. We're gonna get a couple of more of those before I get done up here. Not, not long before I uh, retired from the UUA, I had the great good fortune to be a resident fellow at Harvard Divinity School. It was only for one semester, it was a sabbatical from my UUA work, so I can hardly claim to be a theologian. But I can say with confidence that I know a lot more now about oppression and liberation and thus I know a lot more about the blues. And I learned to my surprise during this sabbatical that some religious perspectives that I have always thought to be very different from ours aren't nearly as different as I thought, and especially not at their growing edges. We don't think about this much now, but narratives of oppression and liberation provide the foundation of our Unitarian Universalist heritage. Through much of the Christian era, starting with the introduction of doctrinal orthodoxy by the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Unitarians have been branded as heretics. 
No small number were executed because of their faith, even burned at the stake after the Protestant Reformation. Our Puritan religious forebears came to these shores to escape religious oppression in England. Our fellow Unitarians in Transylvania today, who are ethnic Hungarians living as a marginalized minority in Romania, have long known oppression. Our foundation as a religion is in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and of course, the Jews' liberation from Egypt is a foundation for their religion. As the spiritual says, drawing from Exodus, let my people go. Later, when a Jew named Jesus came along, many saw him as a Messiah who had come to liberate the Jews from their obligation to follow the rigid, entangled complexities of their law. It's simple, Jesus said. Love God and love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus lived out this theology. The neighbors he loved were not just people like him. His ministry focused on the marginalized, the oppressed people of his time. And the government dealt Jesus the ultimate oppression, death by torture. That's what crucifixion is, a torturously slow-motion death by asphyxiation. The Christianity that formed in the first three centuries after Jesus died was a liberation theology. Much of the conservative Christianity around us today comforts the privileged, but new liberation theologies have been emerging, especially among the impoverished peasants of South America and among African Americans and feminists in this country, people yearning for liberation from the second-class status that our culture has long forced on them. Black liberation theology was much in the news during the last presidential campaign because Barack Obama's was a member of a church where his former minister, the Reverend Jeremiah A. Wright Jr. was a proponent of black liberation theology and sometimes preached it in particularly inflammatory ways. Candidate Obama responded with a speech on race that was a high point of his campaign and presidency. The speech reopened a much needed conversation on race in America in the most responsible of tones, but now, sadly, that tone has been drowned out by anger and bigotry. Today's political discourse makes it clear that many white Americans can muster little empathy for African Americans like Reverend Wright who were born into the Jim Crow era of segregation and lynchings and cruel medical experiments on black prisoners. Or little empathy for younger blacks like President Obama, who was born when the laws of 16 of our states held his parents' interracial marriage to be illegal. Or little empathy for the black children being born right now, who will much likelier than not attend disastrous schools in an America where more college-age African-American males are in prison than are in college. Obama's service as president liberates our nation from at least some of its legacy of bigotry, while making its residual bigotry much more visible. Ironically, we are considering this at our nation's most segregated hour the hour that Americans attend church on Sunday morning. 
Jim Crow may be dead, and our president may be an African-American, but we still have a long way to go as a nation. There is a strong foundation for a theology in this. Theologically, most Unitarian Universalists consider themselves quite distant from the Catholics and Pentecostals who are working among the South American uh, peasants and from the evangelical beliefs that dominate most African-American churches. But our roots are no less in Judaism and Christianity than theirs are. They are, for sure, more deeply engaged with Bible stories than most UUs are, and a striking learning that I took from my Divinity School sabbatical was that the way they read the Bible differs a whole lot from what I was taught in the white bread Sunday school of my youth. Not surprisingly, people who descend from slaves pay close attention to the stories of slaves in the Bible. The Hebrew Bible certainly celebrates the Jews' liberation from slavery in Egypt, but what about the slaves who were held by Jews? If you were white and went to Sunday school, were you ever taught these stories? Were the slaves who were held by the Jews all freed? No, they weren't. And what of women slaves? There's not enough time this morning to delve into the story of Hagar, but open Genesis sometimes, or you can even go to Wikipedia and read about the difficulties that Yahweh loaded on her. And that wilderness experience of the Jews after they escaped from Egypt, for some people, the wilderness goes on generation after generation for centuries. The theologian Dolores S. Williams nonetheless sees the wilderness experience as a foundation for a black liberation theology because it is inclusive and stresses human initiative. How are we going to get out of this mess? It also acknowledges female leadership and it emphasizes the persistence that, in Williams's words, has allowed black women over the centuries to, quote, make a way out of no way. Can you hear the blues in this? The blues is music made out of no way. saw some heads nodding and feet tapping out there. This is good. Have you ever heard the joke about Unitarians being God's frozen people? (laughs) Yeah, I think Steve's helping us thaw out some here, and this is good. But that's a joke about Unitarians. The blues relates much more to the universalist side of our heritage. Dolores Williams' thinking stresses inclusiveness, and that makes her thinking resonate with the first principle of Unitarian Universalism, that we affirm and promote the inherent dignity and worth of every person. In a Divinity School seminar, I also read Leonardo Boff, a pioneer liberation theologian from Brazil 
who is a former Franciscan priest. How he got to be a former priest is a wonderful story, but we don't have time for that this morning. The people he reported to didn't like his theology very much. But when I read Boff's material, I said, this guy is a universalist too. The peasant communities that he works with, and this is from his writing, quote, have a clear call as a social class, but at the same time, they make it clear that they have a universal vocation for justice, rights, and participation of all people everywhere. So these religious thinkers with perspectives that may seem so remote are not all that different from us in important ways. Now here in Harvard Square, so far from Brazil and so far from the need to make a way out of no way, what can we learn this morning from the people like Dolores Williams and Leonardo Boff? Every one of us came to church this morning with all of our particularities as individual people, as religious people, on our own searches for better truth, in search for a clearer path to our best selves, a better sense of how we can serve the common good. We are all linked by a common humanity, but the experiences we've had in our lives are hardly all alike. Some of us have experienced firsthand what it is to live in the margins of our culture. Some of us have known oppression up close or have family members who have known that. But for most of the people here today, I would wager, and for most Unitarian Universalists in pews in our churches all across the country this morning, the margins of our culture are pretty distant. Some UUs understand ourselves to be part of oppressive systems, but we tend to be middle class and we tend to be white. So, do UUs need liberation too? Do we need liberation the way that our Puritan forebears did, the way that the peasants in the northeast of Brazil need liberation, or the way that African Americans have felt the need to escape the margins of American culture and the feminists? If so, what do we need to be liberated from? What oppresses us? And what can liberate us? James Cohn of Union Theological Seminary, whose story of Saturday night blues and Sunday morning spirituals we heard as the reading this morning, suggests that today's American middle class of all races, that would be us, that the middle class Americans are indeed living in a state of oppression. But it's not the whip and chain oppression of the slaves. Cohn calls it velvet oppression. He says middle class discomfort is existential and not material. The enforcer, the master who controls us is middle class yearning for material comfort. I have to admit that this rings true for me. Does it resonate with you? And if so, what do we do with this thought? What do we do with our religious heritage of oppression and liberation? From the Passover to Jesus, to the Puritans' exile from England, to, to Leonardo Boff and Dolores Williams and James Cone. What do we do with the foundational 
liberating message of the blues? Might we be able to find religious paths that lead out of the velvet wilderness to liberation for us? Might we find ourselves humming our own music, a music of our spirits insisting on liberty? If all the bonds we feel restraining us were broken, what would our lives be like? So let's be a little introspective. What bonds do you feel? We all live with the restraints of cultural and family expectations. And our lives can be constrained by tangled relationships at home and work and even at church. Maybe we feel that we have to disguise our true selves to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet, to quote T.S. Eliot. There are so many kinds of closets. Or you might feel the bonds of stress from too much family responsibility or too much work, or these days, no work or too little work, or to the bonds of debt or to the middle class overextension that our materialistic culture has long demanded of us. These may be velvet bonds, but they are oppressive and they can cut you to the bone, to the spiritual bone. Or you might feel bonds of anxiety or cynicism or guilt. Perhaps that guilt comes from investing so much energy into our personal comfort that there's too little left for using what the Reverend Rosemary Bray McNatt of Fourth Universalist Church in New York calls, I love this, the, the power of our minds, our hearts, and our hands to create a better world. We who have privilege and education and resources are powerfully equipped if only we can break free and put our gifts to use. So what bonds are holding us back from being our best selves? What can liberate us? I invite you to pause for a moment now and let your imagination loose. Envision yourself free, fully free, from whatever bonds you feel oppressing you. How do you identify the master that you need liberation from? Reach deep into that well of the spirit from which the blues springs, that need for liberty. Shut your eyes if that will help. Envision yourself as truly liberated, living a truly liberated life where your best self is in easy reach. Let your imagination flow as you listen for that spirit in this music. So has an image formed in your mind of what your liberated life might be like? 
or maybe two or three, pick one and focus on it in silence for just a minute. Focus. Now keep that image with you. It just might help guide the way along your path to your best self, the guide for your religious quest, because your liberated self is that best self that you come to church looking for. In his I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of the fierce urgency of now. Urgency is in the very nature of our lives because our lives are so short. So what could we do now, right now, each of us in all of our particularities, what could we do to bring the fierce urgency of now to the holy task of breaking our bonds, to freeing ourselves, to be our best selves? If we faced oppressors who systematically worked to crush our culture, what would still be accessible to us? What cannot be taken from us? What about us, in Ralph Ellison's phrase, is irrepressibly human? My wife Alex and I discussed this over dinner one night and came up with a short list. Love, compassion, and gratitude are at the top of this list. And of course, there's music and appreciation of all beauty. You can't take that away from anyone. There's mystery and there's awe and there's the capacity to struggle against oppression, our own, velvet as it may be, and to struggle against oppression everywhere. Now this list is hardly etched in stone. It's just one that Alex and I came up with in a casual conversation over dinner. I think it's worth making your own list it's worth giving some thought to this because whatever this list would be for you, for each of us, shouldn't that always be the focus of our lives? What can be more important than the things that cannot be taken from us, the things that make us human, starting with the gifts that each of us could offer the world if we were as oppressed now as the slaves once were? What gifts would you be able to offer? If we would have these gifts to offer, if we were enslaved, why not start offering them anyway, right now, right here? Maybe that would liberate us. <laughs>